0: On April 8, 2008, 22-year-old Jamie Fraley told a friend over the phone she was waiting for a ride to the hospital. Suffering from a stomach bug, Jamie was worried she wasn't getting any better. Jamie ended the call with, he's here. This was the last time Jamie was heard from. A person of interest quickly rose to the top of the list as being responsible for her disappearance. But nearly 12 years later, we still don't know what happened to Jamie Fraley. I'm Charlie, and this is Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. I am going to just start with an apology if I sound sick, because for what feels like the hundredth time this year, I am. I keep getting these fairly mild colds that just kind of stick around. I don't know if it's from having a little kid going to school and another in daycare, or if I turned 40 and my immune system decided we're done. But man, I just keep getting these colds. And I mean, they're all very mild, but it's very frustrating when my job is to talk and to not sound sick. I also want to remind you guys that my live show with the Generation Y is coming up on January 24th. I cannot believe this is happening. Tickets go on sale on December 16th, so I'll keep reminding you so you don't forget. It'll also be on social media. It's here in Kansas City, and I really can't wait. After the show, there will be a meet and greet where everyone's pretty much going to line up to meet. Aaron and Justin from Generation Y, and I'll stand around awkwardly. So if you come, definitely come say hi to me and make me feel slightly less awkward. With that out of the way, let's jump into tonight's case. This case has some twists, but what really struck me is how Jamie Fraley spent pretty much her entire life vulnerable to the world. And when things were finally coming together for her, she disappeared. And when I say she was vulnerable to the world, I mean in nearly every way and from day one. When she was born in March 1986 in Gastonia, North Carolina, there were some very serious complications. Her mom, Kim, almost died, and so did Jamie. So I've had two babies who weren't breathing when they were born, and they had to be kind of revived, pinked up a little bit, but Jamie needed to be completely resuscitated through CPR. After that, she was very frail. She had trouble gaining weight, and she was in poor health. The doctors told her mom, Kim, to prepare to lose Jamie in infancy. She wasn't going to make it to her first birthday. Then she made it into toddlerhood, and the doctors told Kim to be prepared for Jamie not to make it much longer. But Jamie hung in there, and she defied the odds. She grew into a compassionate little girl with a great sense of humor, but that doesn't mean she ever fully recovered. She had developmental delays, and she continued to struggle to put on weight. As an adult, she only made it to four foot eight, and she weighed about 90 pounds, which makes her the size of an average 12-year-old. Throughout her life, she would miss school due to various illnesses, and then as she got older, her anxiety started keeping her home. Jamie was a very social person, but she also dealt with anxiety in large groups, and it would often keep her home. And anxiety is very common for people with chronic health conditions, since things are uncertain. But what we don't always talk about is how chronic illness can lead to social anxiety specifically. You hesitate to make plans because you don't want to be that friend who always flakes because you don't feel well. You push yourself to make the plans anyway, and you feel okay but then your brain starts going. What if you're out and pain hits or sudden fatigue? What if you ruin everyone's good time by getting sick in the middle of it? Especially when you're a teenager and you don't want to stand out as different or needy or attention-seeking, you might think you need to mask the pain while everyone around you is having a great time. So just the thought of that, that all in your brain, It can make someone anxious and lead them to stay home, even when they're an otherwise social person. That's what I suspect was happening here. Jamie did find a place she felt safe, and that was at church. She really found balance there. She did end up dropping out of high school, and right around that same time, Jamie was, not surprisingly, diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. She was also diagnosed as bipolar, which is a mood disorder that is characterized by large shifts in mood. Jamie, due to her physical and mental health struggles, she lived with her mother for the next few years until she was 21. And in this time she was living with her mother, she was dealing with significant depression. Part of that was, of course, due to her brain chemistry because she was inconsistently medicated. Due to the side effects of her psychiatric medications, Jamie would often go off of them completely. That's not uncommon. We've talked about it before, and it's something I'm sure some of you listening to me right now have struggled with. The medication that makes you better in some ways makes you feel worse in others. I'm not sure how much Jamie worked with her doctor to try to find other options, other dosages, but when you're depressed, the energy to go back and forth to the doctor every month for med checks, it can be overwhelming. But just if you're listening right now and you're in this spot, this is me encouraging you, go back to your doctor, talk about your treatment options because you deserve to feel better back to Jamie. On top of her brain chemistry, she was also dealing with some situational issues here. She was watching her friends do what you do after high school. You go to college, you find a job, you move out, you just become more independent. But Jamie couldn't drive and she couldn't even work. She was on social security disability for all of her health issues and She was just as dependent on her family as an adult as she was when she was a kid, and that was weighing on her very heavily. She managed to move out when she was 21, but she had a social worker who had some type of guardianship role in her life. Jamie was not managing her own finances. It all went through her support person, The same worker helped her with rides to and from doctor's appointments and largely checked up with her to make sure she was doing okay. She was buying food when she needed to. She was taking care of her personal needs and so on. It sounds to me like this was a transitional program for young adults who just needed more guidance into adulthood. Not that Jamie was going to be in some type of Assisted living situation for the rest of her life. This was just a bridge from her teen years to adulthood. So in 2006, at the age of 21, Jamie moved to the Copperfield apartment complex in Gastonia. She lived about an hour away from her mother. And this was a huge step for Jamie. I mean, being an hour away from her mother for the first time, but also having that independence of having her own place. And the next step on her path was to complete her education. She hadn't finished high school, so she enrolled in a GED prep class so she could take the equivalency exam. But she had bigger plans than just the GED. She had helped a friend through a struggle with substance abuse. And Jamie found that she not only had a knack for it and a compassion for people who were struggling with addiction, but that it was something she wanted to do more of. She wanted to become an addiction counselor. She began attending her church's sobriety support meetings so she could hear people's stories of addiction and what helped them, what didn't help them. And she could see the reality of addiction. All of this towards her goal of becoming an addiction counselor. Shortly after, Jamie moved into her apartment. She had some type of altercation or argument with someone, and a man named Ricky Simmons Jr. stepped in to defend her. He was the son of the maintenance man at Jamie's complex. Being he was a junior, obviously the maintenance man's name was Ricky Simmons Sr., and he lived just two doors down from Jamie. This is going to get confusing really fast with these names, so I'm going to call the son JR, as he's often referred to as, and then I'll just call the dad by his last name, Simmons. So JR and Jamie met, and it was a whirlwind romance, with JR moving in pretty soon after. He was nine or ten years older than her. He had a checkered past. He had arrests for drugs and theft, but Jamie believed he was committed to staying clean. She was very protective of him whenever her family would, you know, raise their eyebrows a little at the match. The speed at which they became serious was also a concern for some of Jamie's family. Some of them first learned... She was dating JR when she called them to tell them she was dating him and they were going to get married. So it was the definition of a whirlwind romance. But things are coming together for Jamie. She has her apartment. She's working to learn how to negotiate the world as an independent adult. She's back in school. She's getting married. Everything is on the up. But JR had. A little problem in that he had a larceny conviction. And in January of 2007, he was sent to prison for it and he would go on to serve 15 months. Jamie decided to stand by him. She wrote him letters constantly, called him when she could, and the two planned to marry pretty much as soon as he got out. Over the next 14 months, Jamie lived alone in her apartment, writing letters and waiting on JR. She had an interest in true crime, which obviously stood out to me. She started social media pages about cases she was interested in. I'm pretty sure based on the dates that this would have been MySpace where she made these pages. One page was about John Binet Ramsey, which was about a decade-old case at that point. Another was for missing persons. But she was really focused on the case of Samantha Ray Mendez, who was a 15-year-old from Gastonia. Samantha was staying at a youth shelter called With Friends. In May of 2005, she left the shelter and was reported missing. At the time, she was classified as an endangered runaway. They believed she left more or less of her own free will, but she was vulnerable as a 15-year-old homeless girl on the streets. I fell down a little bit of a rabbit hole here to find out what happened to Samantha because it got stuck in my brain. And Samantha was located, though I'm not sure when. I found her in a public record search. She got a speeding ticket in 2017. So she's alive, she's well, she has a lead foot. But in reading about the case, from where Jamie would see it without this resolution— I can absolutely see why she was drawn to it. While Jr. was locked up, Jamie was becoming closer with Jr.'s father, Simmons, and his girlfriend, Kim. Now, the girlfriend has the same name as Jamie's mother, which would also make things kind of confusing, but in the way this story unfolds, they don't really cross paths. It shouldn't be too confusing. So Kim and Ricky Simmons Sr. had been dating since 2003. Simmons was working for Kim's family business when they met, and Kim was really taken by him, really swept off her feet. But she was married with children at the time. She left them to go be with him. Simmons was a longtime drug user, and very soon Kim felt dragged into that world. Jamie, being young, being a little idealistic, and wanting to be a substance abuse counselor, thought she could help them by befriending them, spending time with them, encouraging them to quit and find a life without drugs. The lives of these three people, Simmons, Kim, and Jamie, became enmeshed pretty quickly. Kim worked during the day. So she would have Jamie dog sit for her and then she would come home, pick up her dog. The three would go over to Simmons' apartment where they would cook dinner together and eat. And over this time, Simmons seemed to be wherever Jamie needed him to be. He was happy to give her rides places. He was happy to hang out with her, to keep her company. And Jamie saw this as getting to know her future father-in-law, and she accepted his attention as paternal. But those witnessing this from the outside did not see it that way. They thought Simmons was crossing a line. He would make sexual jokes to and about Jamie. He'd comment on her body, comment on what she was wearing, to the point it made others uncomfortable. And this idea of a father hitting on his son's young fiance is gross. And it reminds me of the Susan Powell case. But in this case, JR and his father did not have a father son relationship like in the Powell situation. They were more like buddies who actually didn't really like each other. Simmons had not been around when JR was growing up. He was a teenager when JR was born and in and out of jail for petty crimes for years, until 1986, when he killed a woman. He strangled his ex-girlfriend Donna Miller and was convicted of manslaughter. He was sentenced to 20 years, but only served seven. He was paroled in 1992. At this point, J.R. is already 17, 18 years old. So Simmons hadn't been around when he was a kid. By the time he gets out of prison, JR's practically an adult. So they don't have this father son bond. And then the in and out of prison continued with the next generation with JR, who was getting arrested for theft and drug charges. And now he was the one in prison. Simmons was out and he was keeping JR's girlfriend company. Simmons had a girlfriend, Kim, but their relationship was volatile, to say the least. In the fall of 2007, Kim broke things off with him. She kicked him out, but he only moved as far as another apartment in the same complex. At some point, they reconciled, but Kim ended things for good in March 2008, and she moved out. She moved out of the apartment, and she moved out of the complex. Kim said there were two things that ended the relationship. One, she wanted to get clean. Simmons was not in that place and she knew she could not get and stay sober while in a relationship with someone who was using. The other reason was that they kept fighting and one of the things they were fighting over was Simmons' attention to Jamie. Kim saw what other people saw. She saw her boyfriend giving attention and affection to Jamie in ways he was not giving to her, and that seemed wrong. It seemed creepy. So in April 2007, Kim was gone, and Jamie was living alone in her apartment with Simmons nearby. 31-year-old JR was about to get out of prison in just a few weeks which Jamie was, of course, excited about. So she started making some plans. She had just turned 22 and wanted to take control of her finances pretty soon. Before she got married to JR, she wanted to prove she was ready to be fully independent. She set up a meeting for April 9th to talk this over. The plan was for a social worker to pick her up at her apartment and bring her to the meeting. But the day before, on April 8th, Jamie woke up not feeling well. Kim stopped by in the morning to drop her dog off, because in spite of the breakup stuff, Jamie was still dog-sitting for her. Kim noticed Jamie wasn't feeling well, asked her if she was okay. Jamie said she felt ill, but not so much that she couldn't watch the dog. But by midday, Jamie was not okay. She was having stomach pains and cramping. She was vomiting she had the chills, so she called her social worker, who came by around lunchtime to bring her to the ER. The doctor there diagnosed her with a just routine stomach virus and gave her some prescriptions for the symptoms. But Jamie wasn't convinced this was just a routine virus. She thought it was something worse. So on the way home, thinking she was being misdiagnosed, she decided not to get the prescriptions filled. At the end of the workday, when Kim came by to pick up the dog, Jamie was in bed. She was weak. She told her about the trip to the ER and how sick she was. Kim asked if she needed anything, but really all Jamie needed was to go ahead and get those prescriptions filled, so Kim offered to take them to the pharmacy to drop them off. But she said Jamie would need someone else to pick them up when they were ready, but she'd get the prescriptions to the pharmacy. Jamie said, sure. Kim left with her dog and the prescriptions in hand. She dropped them off, and she went home. That night, around 9 or 10 at night, Jamie was getting worse. She still hadn't sent anyone to pick up her prescriptions from the pharmacy, and she decided she needed to go back to the hospital. She called Simmons, and he agreed to take her. But when he drove her to the hospital, mind you, with her in pain and vomiting... He literally just dropped her off. He didn't even stay long enough for her to check in at the front desk, at the triage. When she did go to check in, they told her there was a long wait and she couldn't be seen for hours. And not wanting to sit in the ER waiting room, puking and shivering, she decided to just go home. She tried to call Simmons to come back and get her, but he didn't answer. She eventually reached a friend who drove to the hospital, picked her up, and then Jamie was last seen walking into her apartment at midnight. This friend is not a suspect at all because we know Jamie made it into the apartment. Shortly after getting in, her phone rang. It was her mom who was checking on her. Jamie said she was still sick, but the wait at the ER was too long. She kind of filled her mom in on all that. So her mom, Kim, offered to come get her, have her come home, spend the night where she could take care of her, all those mom things that you would offer. But Jamie said it wasn't necessary. The biggest reason she had, though, wasn't that she didn't need to be taken care of. It was because of the drive. She had that meeting in the morning about getting control of her finances, and her mother lived an hour away. She didn't want to have to find a way back to her apartment early in the morning to meet the social worker. She wasn't sure she'd be able to get there in time. This meeting was so important to her, and the point of it was to prove she could take care of herself. So calling in sick and canceling that meeting, no matter how justified, I can honestly see why she was hesitant to do that. She had something to prove here. After hanging up with her mom, Jamie sent an email, then she talked to a friend on the phone, so we're talking somewhere around 1 or 1.30. She told the friend she wasn't getting better and she just really needed to go back to the hospital. She said she already had a ride lined up and she was waiting on him. They talked for a bit and Jamie said he's here before hanging up. The friend obviously took that to me and her ride to the hospital was there, though Jamie never gave the name of who her ride was. The only clue she gave was that it was a he and that he drove a truck. In the morning, which would be several hours later, Jamie's caseworker came by to pick her up for the meeting. She knocked on the door, got no answer. She tried to call Jamie and it went to voicemail, so not knowing what was going on, she left and went about her day. The next day, when the social worker still hadn't heard from Jamie, still hadn't gotten in touch with her, she reached out to Jamie's family to ask if they knew where Jamie was. And they were worried pretty much right away. They hadn't heard from her since she talked to her mom at midnight, so over 24 hours before. But This didn't alarm them because Jamie just wasn't a call-everyday kind of person. Not hearing from her was not unusual. But what the social worker said was unusual. Even if Jamie wouldn't call regularly, she would typically call people back, but most alarming is that she missed that meeting. That meeting was Jamie's entire focus, with the exception of Jr. coming home from jail soon, But that meeting was everything. She planned on going to it, whether she was sick or not, and she would not have missed it. Kim's first thought was that Jamie took a turn while home alone, and she was just too sick to call for help. It would take her an hour to get to Jamie's place, so in a mild panic, she called the local police to do a welfare check. When the police got to the apartment, her door was locked. No one answered when they knocked, so they used the landlord's key to get in. Jamie wasn't there. Nothing looked amiss. There were no signs of a struggle. There were no signs. Someone broke in. None of that. So the police called Kim back and told her all of this and said Jamie was likely just not home. But Kim and two relatives decided they wanted to see for themselves because it just wasn't making sense. Jamie couldn't drive, so there weren't really a lot of options for where she would have gone. They drove the hour out to Jamie's apartment and went inside, and one of the first things that struck them was what was left behind in the apartment. Jamie's wallet and purse were there, and so were her keys. Her phone, though, was gone. Jamie's mom, Kim, said that Jamie would grab just her phone and leave everything else behind but only if she was on foot, like she was going to visit a neighbor. If she was going somewhere away from the apartment, away from the complex, she would have taken her purse. But what really stood out were the keys. The police found the door locked. She wouldn't have locked her door without then taking her keys with her. The family didn't know about the call to her friend at this point, the one that said someone was picking her up to take her to the hospital. So they don't know about any of that. But when it did come out that Jamie was planning to go back to the hospital, it caused even more alarm because Jamie would have needed the things in her wallet, her ID and her insurance card to get services at the hospital. Why would she have left that behind? Her family also found shoes at the apartment with the laces removed, which wasn't Jamie's style. She didn't wear shoes without laces. Those shoes and her flip-flops were pretty much all she wore, and I saw no indication they found her flip-flops, so it sounds like they think she left in those. Now, back in Jamie's bedroom, they found dried vomit on the floor, which was also weird. I mean, they knew she was sick with the stomach flu, so that part wasn't weird, But she would have cleaned it up if she had thrown up on the floor. If she was well enough to go out like the police were assuming happened, she would have been well enough to clean the floor. Jamie's mom, Kim, called the police back to the apartment to point out all of these things. The cops show backup, but again, they weren't that alarmed. There was no evidence Jamie didn't leave on her own in their view. This changes pretty quickly because Kim had been calling Jamie's cell phone off and on all that day, as you can imagine. So while she was waiting outside the apartment while the police were searching it again, she decided to try the number one more time. What else could she do? This time someone picked up, but it was a man. And Kim asked, who are you? He said he was working on the cable line along the side of the road, and he heard a phone ringing. He looked around, and he found it in the grass in the median of the road. He decided to answer it, hoping the caller could help identify the owner of the phone. A patrol officer was immediately sent out to the site to get the phone, which was about a mile and a half from Jamie's apartment. So the phone wasn't smashed or really broken, but it was dinged up. Because it was found in the median of the road, police started wondering if it was thrown from the driver's side of a car. Jamie doesn't drive, so it wouldn't have been thrown out the driver's side of a car by her. And it was the discovery of Jamie's phone discarded like this that kicked the police from she's an adult who's allowed to wander off to something might be wrong. They ran forensics on the phone, fingerprints and DNA. All of that was a wash because the phone had been out in the elements for possibly 24 hours, maybe longer, and multiple people had touched it. The digital forensics was a little more successful. They found a series of calls that were made around 4.30 in the morning on the 9th. So we're talking four and a half hours since Jamie last talked to her mom. None of the calls connected, but they were all made to people who were on Jamie's recently called list. There are two theories I could come up with about these phone calls, and I want you guys to reach out, email, social media, whatever, and let me know what you think, because here are my two. One, Jamie was in trouble and was trying to dial someone for help. The people she most recently called were her mom and some close friends, so it made sense they'd be the ones she would reach out to. The second option is that someone found the phone before the worker did. They called the most recently called numbers to try to find the owner. When no one answered, they just put the phone back where they found it and moved on. Both of these theories have something that makes them seem a little less likely. For instance, if this was Jamie, why didn't she call 911 if she was in trouble? Unless she just didn't think she was in serious danger, but just looking for a ride somewhere. But she didn't leave anyone a voicemail, so that was weird. As as far as we know, she didn't leave anyone a voicemail. On the other hand, if it was a random person... It would have been a random person who was walking on the median of a road at 4.30 in the morning rather than on the sidewalk, and that seems odd. I guess maybe a third theory is that someone accidentally butt-dialed a bunch of people, but you would think it would just be that top number over and over again, not someone going through a list. Anyway, for me, I don't know. I want to hear what you guys think about who may have made those 4.30 phone calls, Obviously, there may be more information on the phone that hasn't been released to the public that would give us that peace. Was it Jamie? Was it a random person? Was it someone else? I can't imagine it was the person who hurt her, because why would they call a bunch of her friends and family? This isn't a ransom kidnapping kind of situation. The police also canvassed the apartment complex at this point. And they found a neighbor who saw Jamie enter her apartment at midnight, which is in line with what her friend said of when she was dropped off. What we don't have is anyone who saw her leave or return after this. A few people in the complex mentioned to the police that Jamie was known to spend a lot of time with 49-year-old Ricky Simmons Sr., the father of her fiancé. So they brought him in for some questioning. On the disappeared episode, the detective described Simmons as cooperative on the surface. He was willing to answer questions, but they didn't feel like he was telling them everything he knew, and they felt like he was being manipulative in how he presented that information. Simmons did admit he drove Jamie to the hospital and dropped her off that night around 10, which we already know, but he said he did not see her at 130. he was not her ride to the hospital then. On April 11th, two days after Jamie was last seen, the police searched the woods near where the phone was found, all around the apartment complex and in local bodies of water. They used search dogs, but they found nothing directly related to Jamie, as far as we know. However, they did find a bag of trash that somehow linked them back to Simmons. I assume something in the bag must have had his name or his address on it. It was found a mile and a half from where the phone was found and a couple miles from the apartment complex. It was an odd find, but nothing in the trash connected to Jamie or some type of crime. It's not like it was full of bloody clothes. They couldn't figure out how the location figured into Jamie's disappearance, even. One detective said on the Disappeared episode that if you mapped the apartment to the phone to the trash bag, it would make a triangle, but per my knowledge of geometry, that's how three points that are not in a straight line kind of work. They all make triangles, so I'm not entirely sure where he was going with that. Anyway, when the investigators asked Simmons why he left a bag of trash in a seemingly random spot, he said he had a flat tire one day and had pulled over to change it. When he popped open his trunk, he had to remove a bag of trash to access the spare tire. When he finished changing his tire, he must have forgotten to put the bag back in when he drove off. So he basically confessed to littering. That's about it but Simmons was the main person of interest in this case for three reasons. One, he was one of the last people to see Jamie that night. Two, a few people had told the police about the inappropriate interest in Jamie. Her cousin assured the police that any advances from him would be unwanted by Jamie. And the third reason is that Simmons had killed a woman who spurned him once before, back when he got that manslaughter conviction. His son, J.R., was on the side of those who thought his dad was involved in Jamie's disappearance. When J.R. got out of prison a few weeks after she went missing, he didn't go home to his dad because of this. He had nowhere else to go, though, so Jamie's mom, Kim, took him in. Jamie loved him, wouldn't want him on the streets, so Kim was prepared to help him, for Jamie's sake, assuming he stayed clean. She said he left the house every single day to search for Jamie. About a month after Jamie's disappearance, so we're talking May, detectives got a warrant to track Simmons' vehicle. The hope was he would go back to wherever he left Jamie, if he was the one who did it. Maybe he had killed her and would revisit the spot because of his obsession with her, or to just make sure her body was hidden well enough. Or she was alive and he had her stashed somewhere. Either way, the plan was to track his movements and hopefully find Jamie. So when they would find a spot where he parked his car for a while, they would go search in that area. They didn't find Jamie, but they did find something else. All these various stops and all the places he drove made it really clear that he was stalking his ex-girlfriend, Kim. They notified her and suggested she get a protective order, which is exactly what she did in late May 2008. Shortly after getting the order, Kim's car was broken into while it was in her driveway and someone stole her purse out of it. She immediately suspected Simmons. There was also a window of her new home that was broken, and she assumed Simmons had tried to break in. Around the same time his ex-girlfriend Kim was fearing for her safety, Simmons was making phone calls to other people who didn't exactly want to hear from him. He called Jamie's mom Kim and said something about how whoever had Jamie must just not want to give her back. It was just a weird comment in the context and it didn't sit right with her then he called his son jr simmons said he knew where jamie was and got jr to agree to meet him they met at lowes which is a huge hardware store he claimed he last saw jamie in kim his ex-girlfriend's car which jr knew was a lie it sounded like simmons was actually just trying to push suspicion off of himself, and onto Kim, which, what would her motivation be? She and Jamie were still friends. J.R. actually confronted him a bit on this. Kim had taken and passed a lie detector in the case, whereas Simmons had been asked to take one and refused. So J.R. asked him if he was willing to go in and take the polygraph. At this question, Simmons turned on his heel and left. About two weeks later, on Saturday, June 7th, ex-girlfriend Kim went to work around 3 p.m. Then around 4, her car alarm went off. So she went out to the parking lot to see what was up and didn't see anything odd. No one was around. So she turned off the alarm, locked her car again, and went back to work. At 10.30 that night, she left work and notice the inside of her car smelled funny. Not terribly, but more like that mildewy smell when you leave something wet or damp in your car. It was June in North Carolina, so it was pretty hot, and that probably would have been my first guess too. The next morning, a little before nine, Kim was driving some friends to church when she noticed that that weird smell was actually much worse. By the afternoon, it was intolerable. So Kim was doing what we'd all do. She was reaching under seats. She was looking through the console. She was just trying to find that discarded to-go box or cup, whatever was causing the smell, she couldn't find anything. She even checked around the outside of her car, thinking maybe she had hit an animal and it was stuck in the undercarriage, but she found nothing. So now it's around 6 p.m. She's cleaned out her car. Her car still stinks, and the only place she hasn't checked yet is her trunk. So then she thinks maybe she left a grocery bag in there or something had leaked or spilled. So Kim pops open the trunk and screams immediately. It wasn't some busted milk gallon or forgotten groceries. It was 49-year-old Ricky Simmons Sr. curled up in the fetal position and not moving. It looked at first like someone had stuffed the body in her trunk, but the evidence pointed to something different. When Simmons' body was removed from the trunk, a set of keys to Kim's car and a knife were found under him. Then on autopsy, it was determined he had drugs and alcohol in his system, and he died of hyperthermia. Basically, he went into the trunk alive, but overheated when the outside temperatures reached 96 degrees Fahrenheit, which would be about 35 degrees Celsius. So that's the outside air temp. You can only imagine how hot the trunk was police theorize that Simmons had planned on getting into Kim's trunk and later jumping out to scare her or attack her. I'm going to go with attack. He may not have intended to close the trunk all the way and it closed on accident. It's also possible he closed it on purpose, thinking he could use the trunk release to open it and then couldn't find it. Because the trunk did have that emergency release lever, they did test it. It was in working order. He did have those drugs and alcohol in his system. Combine that with the heat and maybe some panic. It would have disoriented him enough that he couldn't get out. Now, Jamie's family, they didn't feel a great sadness at the news Simmons died, but they definitely felt his loss because it was the loss of whatever information he had about Jamie's disappearance. Of course, his death was not the end of the investigation. In late 2008, a tip came in about a local pond that was near the apartment complex, but a search yielded nothing. In April 2009, a year after her disappearance, a full search and rescue team came in with dogs, ATVs, sonar-equipped boats, trained searchers, the whole nine yards they went back over those key places the police had looked at. So we're talking the apartment complex, obviously, where the phone was found, where that bag of trash was found. I mean, they knew a year in that they were looking for bones, not a body, but they still found nothing. So let's sum up what we know. Around 1 or 1.30 in the morning, Jamie was waiting on someone to take her to the hospital. She never made it to the hospital, and she was never seen again. That is the sum total of what we know, factually speaking. The most popular theory is that she left with someone willingly, likely thinking she was going to the doctor. Instead, that person abducted her. Most people point at Ricky Simmons Sr., and that includes the investigators. There were a few days between when Jamie went missing and Simmons was being looked at. So there was time for him to clean up any evidence that tied him to her. When Jamie said she was getting a ride from a man with a truck, Simmons didn't drive a truck, he drove a van, but it was a white panel van, not like a minivan. It was something that I would be just as likely to call a work truck as calling it a van. So I wouldn't Rule it out entirely based just on this. Another thing that gets pointed out is that Jamie said she was waiting for her ride, which wouldn't make sense since Simmons lived really close. It wasn't like she had to watch for his truck to pull in to come get her. But I do think it's possible, since it was the dead of the night, that he may have said he would take her, but he needed to get dressed first when she said he's here to her friend, she may have meant he knocked on the door, not that he just pulled into the apartment complex. Then again, he could have told her, wait here, I'm going to go get gas first, and then I'll come back and get you. So again, this doesn't rule out Simmons. All that said, though, I can't get over her leaving her keys and wallet inside and locking the door behind her. This makes me think that she didn't leave her apartment thinking she was going to the hospital. So picture this scenario. It's going to be conjecture and speculation, I know. But someone who lives nearby knocks on the door and Jamie says he's here and hangs up. She goes to the door and the person says they can go to the hospital in a minute, but he needs Jamie to come to his apartment first. Maybe he says he can't find his keys and needs her to help look. So she puts her phone, which was in her hand, into her pocket, slips on her flip-flops, and walks to the apartment. Or she gets this knock on the door before she can grab any of her stuff. When she opens the door, the person has a weapon and forces her to leave as is. Like I said, it's conjecture. I'm not saying it was Simmons, but I do think it was a neighbor, someone whose home she could get to easily. I don't think she ever made it into a vehicle to go to the hospital where she would have taken more than her cell phone and flip-flops. I do want to go back to those shoes that had the laces pulled out because it seems so odd, but it also doesn't make sense to be connected to any crime. Should laces take more time to pull out than I think someone would want to spend When I'm sure if they needed a string or a rope for some element of this crime, they could have found something that was quicker, like cutting the cord from the blinds. And if the shoelaces contained some type of evidence, why wouldn't the killer just take the whole shoe? An explanation I thought of was possibly she had thrown up on her shoes and she took the shoelaces out so she could clean her shoes. But from what it sounds like, they found the shoes. They never found the shoelaces. But we know that in all cases, solved or unsolved, there are parts that don't make sense. And I think these shoes are something that don't make sense. So Simmons makes the best suspect any way you slice it. He killed a woman before, his girlfriend had recently called things off and moved out. Jamie, who he showed interest in, had no interest in him, and then she disappeared. Then a couple months later, he was found hiding in his ex's trunk with a knife. I think Kim was set to be Simmons' next victim if fate had intervened. I don't think this was a man who knew how to deal with rejection with anything except violence. But Simmons is dead. And if he knew anything about Jamie's disappearance, he took it with him. So let's cover some theories that don't involve Simmons for a minute though, because there was a confession in this case and it came from a man named Jerry Douglas Case. Let me give some background on him. In 2012, Case wrote a letter to the Gaston Gazette and to the district attorney confessing to murdering a 17-year-old in 1985. Chris Farmer had gone out for New Year's Eve and he was found the next day dead on the railroad tracks. The death was ruled an accident. A train had hit him and really covered up any other possible cause of death. So this is a 27-year-old accident that no one was investigating as a murder, and Case confessed to being involved. That seems odd because it got away clean, and who would come back and confess like this? But Case wasn't actually a free man living his life at the time he confessed. He was 54 years old and serving a 30-year sentence for kidnapping an elderly man and his grandchildren. He forced them into their own car at gunpoint and had the grandfather drive him around for 12 hours. They crossed state lines between North Carolina and into South Carolina, making it a federal crime. That's why he had such a long sentence. It also didn't help that when he was caught, he had a shootout with the police. He was the only one shot in the exchange. And of course, he lived to tell the tale. But he wasn't in good health at this point, and he fully expected to die in prison. So he said his motivation for confessing was to get it off of his chest before he died. So Gaston County charged him with second-degree murder. While waiting on trial for that murder, Case wrote to the Gazette again confessing to two more murders. One was Jamie Fraley, and the other was the 2008 murder of Lucy Johnson. And Lucy's murder could be its own episode. She was a 31-year-old nurse with two children and another on the way. One night when her kids were not home, someone shot her twice in the head and set her house on fire. The father of her unborn baby, was a man she had a really quick relationship with. Within a month of starting dating, she was pregnant. He proposed a couple months later. Things were moving fast. Her fiancé was arrested and tried for her murder, but acquitted by the jury. The only juror who has spoken out about their decision to acquit said that there was another reasonable suspect that they couldn't ignore, the father of one of her other children, who she had a contentious custody battle with. For them, that was enough reasonable doubt. No one else has been tried for Lucy's murder, so it remains unsolved, and now we have Jerry Case confessing to it, along with claiming to have killed Jamie. The Gazette wrote an article about this, but they were very quick to point out that all of the information in his letters about Jamie and about Lucy was already published information, not just out in the media in general, but you could find this information in the Gazette itself. So all this proved was that Case read the newspaper that he was writing to. When he was further questioned by investigators, Case could provide no real details that indicated he knew anything about either case that wasn't in the newspaper. Police always hold back information so that they can corroborate statements like this and confessions to kind of weed out those false ones. And Case had none of these hold back details. In a cursory look into the cases and His own past would prove he couldn't have had anything to do with Jamie's disappearance because he was in prison at the time for killing someone else. He had been convicted of killing a cab driver in 1985. He was initially given a death sentence. He appealed, won his appeal, had a retrial, and this time he was convicted of second-degree murder, which is not a death penalty crime, and he was given a life sentence which he then paroled out on in 2008 after spending 22 years in prison. He was barely out when Lucy was murdered, but definitely still locked up when Jamie went missing. As for the Chris Farmer case, the first one he confessed to, Case was never tried for it. There's a story behind this as well. In 2015, Case claimed he only had four months left to live and wanted to have the case resolved before he died. He agreed to plead guilty, but his only condition was he wanted the death penalty. Now, the issue is that the death penalty wasn't on the table for a second degree murder charge, so he went back on the deal and pleaded not guilty. He was ready to go to trial on this. The DA at this point was done, done, done with Jerry Case. He said he wasn't going to spend the time and the money pursuing a trial against a man who was going to die in prison anyway. He felt like Case was just dragging this out for entertainment. He was making false confessions. He was insisting on this trial, and all it was doing was passing away the time while he was in prison. Not interested in being a game Jerry Case was playing, the DA just sent him back to the federal prison to finish out his sentence. Now, Case, who claimed in 2015 that he had four months to live, died in federal prison in 2018, three years later. Back to Jamie, though. With any missing persons case, the she ran off theory is always talked about. Obviously, nobody believes that this was a case of her leaving to... Live a new life somewhere else. The theory here is that she was sick. She was possibly experiencing symptoms of either her anxiety disorder, bipolar disorder, or both. And she wandered off in a delusional state. And I definitely do not want to fall into the trap of she was bipolar, so she must have been manic, because bipolar disorder is not one thing. Some people never experience full mania. No one has specified if she was diagnosed with bipolar one or bipolar two, and no one seemed to indicate that they felt she was having some extreme swings at the time. Nobody said she was depressed, and nobody said she was manic. But if Jamie did wander off, those calls at four thirty in the morning fit a little bit better because let's say she was disoriented and lost. She had her phone, so she started calling the top numbers. Nobody answered because, again, 4 30 in the morning. This would mean she's the one who dropped the phone in the median of the road. Because she couldn't drive, she would have been on foot. No one has come forward saying to have seen her early in the morning walking around, but again, it was early in the morning. I just honestly don't believe this. I don't think she wandered off in any state. She was on the phone with a friend and said she was leaving with someone. She didn't seem at all confused or delusional or agitated to the friend. She just seemed sick. When it comes down to it, it was very likely the person who agreed to give her a ride to the hospital that night who is responsible for her disappearance. If it was someone else, the person giving her a ride would have come forward and said, I went to give her a ride and she wasn't there. Nobody has done that. So you might think, check her phone logs, and that'll limit the options. Who did she call who could have given her a ride? They did check her phone records. They checked her email. They even followed up on an email she sent to someone deployed overseas that night. So it is possible the police have narrowed down a list of persons of interest based on these phone and email records, and that's part of the holdback information. We don't know. But if Jamie's ride was a neighbor, she very easily could have made the arrangements verbally. She could have just knocked on a door. The family has said that disappearance does not mean murder, and they do hold on hope that Jamie is alive somewhere. They have acknowledged the odds are against them, but unless her body's recovered, they don't have a reason to let go of that hope. In recent years, someone did send Kim a photo of a woman from a classified ad for escort services. This is a concern with sex trafficking, though most people trafficked or groomed into it, not necessarily kidnapped in the dead of the night. But this woman did look a lot like Jamie, and everyone who saw the picture agreed. But when police followed up on it, they were able to find the woman and confirm she was not Jamie. While that didn't pan out, it did give the family some assurances that people were still paying attention and they were still looking for Jamie. And as they were building to the 10-year mark of Jamie being missing, that had to have been a little bit fortifying to know people are still looking. At the time of her disappearance, Jamie Fraley was 22 years old. She would be 33 years old today. She had strawberry blonde hair and blue eyes. She was four foot eight and weighed no more than 100 pounds. And due to her health issues, it's very unlikely she would have put on more weight in the last 11 years. Jamie does have the name Ricky tattooed on her right ankle. Because she was not seen leaving her apartment, no one knows for sure what she was wearing. But she had been last seen in blue jeans and an oversized white shirt. If you have any information on the disappearance of Jamie Fraley, please call the Gaston County Police Department at 704-866-3320.